Welcome to the Hypergens Founders Podcast, the show where we explore the secrets behind brilliant minds running successful B2B companies. I'm your host, Alex, and we'll dive into conversations with inspiring founders each week. From garage startups to global enterprises, get ready for inspiration, insights, and secrets behind their success. Stay tuned for engaging discussions on technology innovation and leadership. This is the Founders Podcast. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Founders Podcast. With me, we have Ben Breen, the founder of uh, Canary, an award-winning executive reputation management and talent branding solutions company. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you here. It's great to be here, Alex. Thanks for having us. For sure. While we start with this, can you tell me the story behind your company and why you picked that unique name, which is spelled like Canary, <laughs> but uh, I guess with a Q? Mm, yeah, so uh, so the company basically was founded originally on a pretty straightforward premise. Uh, we're now in our 11th year as a business. So the, 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 the thesis behind the company was that every executive, every professional has some form of a, of a digital presence, uh, online presence. And um, that presence matters. That matters in terms of the reputation of the individual, the reputation of the businesses that that individual is associated with, the opportunities that that person gets, and the opportunities that the business gets. And that simple, relatively simple premise, albeit when we started the company, was not something that the world was like ready for 12 years ago, 11 years ago. They, you know, everyone was very focused on, well, what is, what is my company doing? What is my brand doing? But what's become very, very clear and apparent is that people are the company, people are the brand and the relationship between a company and, the, and, a, and, a, and an employee and an executive is more a partnership and less of a part of. And so, we're, we're, I think, part of that movement uh, that really shaped over the last decade. Uh, now, in terms of the name, uh, you know, we were named after the lovely canary bird. Um, there's an English phrase that says that, uh, you know, um, that you'll hear people say canary in a coal mine, um, which is related to the fact that coal miners used to carry uh, lovely little canary birds down into the coal mines with them. And, um and sometimes if, if the coal mine was unsafe, you know, the, the poor bird would unfortunately die. But the, the idea, the phrase has kind of become almost like a, an early warning signal, a way to kind of be a little bit ahead of any dangers, you know, shaping things. And so th that, that idea was, um, is part of what we do. We're really trying to put people in control of their online presence and how they tell their stories. And so that's um, the, the name stuck. And People seem to love the the the, the logo, um, uh, and we spell it with a Q because uh, we tried it with a K, and we took it to a group of designers at the Academy of Arts in San Francisco, and they they loved the Q. They said that looks really cool, and um, and so there you go. Awesome. Yeah. If you also took the regular spelling, like when you're, I guess, Googling it, you will compete with the birds. I think it's good that you picked like a, <laughs> a unique name. Probably. 
Awesome. And yeah, I think we're also seeing that a lot too, especially in the B2B space where it's really about, I don't think it's even about the company, it's more like the relationship that you have with the person. But are you also seeing that with more B2C companies that are more consumer oriented, where like people are starting to care more behind like the faces, the leaders behind the company instead of the brand itself? It's a great question. Certainly a lot of, a lot of companies will have their founders, B2C companies will have their founders play uh, an active role in promoting the business. And usually it's one person. I would say that whole wave of influencers that have built businesses over the last couple of years are good examples of that. The Logan Pauls of this world that have uh, his prime soda or prime beverage, those types of companies. But I, I would say that idea has not fully taken foot yet as much as I think it could. There was a, there was a very uh, important founder of a company called Zappos who um, passed away several years ago. And he had a philosophy that all people that work for Zappos should be able to speak to any customer about anything. He didn't want to hire anybody into his company that he felt could not represent the company. And he influenced me quite a bit in terms of my own thinking and philosophy in general about how to manage companies and businesses. And I do think that there is this reality that many companies still struggle with, which is there is much more transparency and there's so much more connection between employees and executives and the outside world. And we can pretend that doesn't exist, but the reality is that we know that from our annual research that if an end customer follows the brand and an executive of that company, they're twice as likely to purchase from that company, i.e. it matters. What the executive is doing matters. It impacts whether they're, how the business is going to perform in the marketplace. Yeah, and those stats are those from your uh, Canary report? I saw that on your Yeah, website. so we do a big annual report. We do this in connection with Emerson College in Boston and Blancarna, uh, which is a leading communications school in Europe based in Barcelona. And every year, it's it, we're actually finalizing the results right now. So hopefully, Alex, I'll have some good stuff to share with the world in the next uh, two, three weeks. But yeah, we do this study to see how executives are perceiving online presence. A couple of years ago, we did a separate study, which looked at how customers looked at the topic of executive online presence, like end customers. And that's really where that data came from. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to, once you have that information, I'd love to yeah. take a look for it myself. Great. And I guess what made you start this business, which I guess right now it's a mix of a B2B SaaS and a B2B service business, right? Yeah, it has uh, more and more SaaS components every day. I would say I do think that we still have a little bit of a managed service element to the business. And I don't think we'll ever stop that uh, for some of the things that we deliver for sure. But I spent most of my career working in digital advertising and advertising. I noticed 11, 12 years ago that there was just an incredible amount of companies that were coming to the market focused on 
finding ways to optimize what a brand was doing in digital media. We were like fine tuning to 0.001% performance. And one thing that I just noticed one day was that we had a customer who I looked at his results compared to his brand and he was getting 20 times more engagement with his posts than the brand was. And he was struggling because he was like, I don't, I can't manage this. I don't know what to do. And the light went off that like that there was a need for executives to do something, but many of them just didn't know what to do. They didn't have the time to do it. And so we built a solution really around that need. And then the other thing was that the algorithms and the way that platforms were being built was really making it hard for brands to grow their audiences. You have to pay quite a bit of money more and more every day, even now more and more every day to Facebook or Meta and X and LinkedIn and et cetera. And, and yet the way that the math worked for these algorithms, they want people connecting with other people. That's like quite important for the success and health of a social network. And so it made sense that we would support individuals because the algorithm, the math was always going to support that idea. So that's what we've done. And we built a model that optimizes people's online presence. It generates thought leadership content for them, whether it be text-based content, video content. Now we do more and more video every day and we grow that, grow and engage that audience with the people that they want to be associated with. Awesome. And let's say like a founder, Comes to you, right? I'm guessing you guys use pretty much like all the social media channels. Are there ones that you're like, these are the ones they have to go after, or maybe like they should experiment with newer channels where maybe they're getting like more engagement now, let's say TikTok, because there isn't that many ads yet. What would you recommend folks to start with first? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that if when we were getting going, everyone felt very comfortable with LinkedIn. And they really were focused around LinkedIn and their Google search results. Those were the kind of the two things that they cared most about. I would say today, if you have reluctant executives, we always really just focus on LinkedIn to get them going because they're just too nervous about doing anything else. However, your online presence, that's just really scratching the surface. We still do quite a bit of work with X or Twitter. We find that the way that the tech world developed over the last decade is that a lot of the companies that monitor information use Twitter data. And so having a presence there matters. We'll see how Elon Musk evolves the platform, but we're still doing work there. We do a lot of work with Medium, which is a game platform that we find actually does quite well with kind of real serious commercial thought leadership. And then certainly we will post out on Instagram more and more. I would say Instagram is a channel that went from being quite like a fun kind of Kardashian-like channel, and it still has that quality. Uh, but um, we see that generation has all grown up. Like the Kardashians have grown up, right? They're all now adults now and they have, they're running businesses and they're things like that. And so they're a little bit more serious. They're putting out more professional content there and journalists are doing the same. TikTok, um, probably I would say the most engaging social channel in the world by far. Um, and certainly 
anybody who went through the pandemic, I don't think I would have survived the pandemic without TikTok. It was so enjoyable. But the the reality is that it's because of the issues with the data and uh, China, from a professional perspective, there's a lot of, I'd say, reluctance to go too far into that world. I would say for certain brands, there's some brands that really emerged on TikTok over the last two, three years. I know there's a couple of real estate people that kind of went from being like not known at all. And now they're like mega stars. There, there are professionals that have succeeded quite well in TikTok, and I wouldn't shy away from it. I do think that it is an interesting channel, albeit I would say that for the kind of customers that we deal with, which are, we really work with kind of true executives, true professionals of either Fortune 1000 companies or slightly scaled medium-sized businesses. These would be companies that would be 10, 15, 20 million at the minimum plus on revenue, they have to be careful. They can't just be putting a lot of stuff out there. The other thing that the issue with TikTok is there's just a lot of bot action there. I don't know the percentage, but it would be a high percentage of traffic that comes to pages is just automated bots. They're not real. And and I think that'll get fixed over time, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they figure things out. From a technical standpoint, I was blown away at the speed of that of sites just the technology is just superb we'll see how it evolves maybe they want to call us we'll work with them on developing a a professional version of of their technology (laughs) yeah i know i haven't seen a lot of i guess thought leadership i don't use tiktok in general but in general i haven't heard a lot of people going there but i know a lot of brands they like to use it from the ads perspective where they do yeah. like user generated content. So they're actually like driving purchases and acquiring customers. Yeah, but they're kind of a specific type of brand, right? So they're new brands. There was like five or six brands that developed that were offering these kind of mushroom infused drinks that are supposed to be good for balance and relaxation and focus. And then some health drinks. I think there's one like Mud Water or Alpha Boost or Alpha Green. These types of brands have done quite well there, but they go after a really young customer audience. And we'll see how those do over time. I imagine that if they really want to scale those businesses, they'll think about other channels as well. Yeah, it will evolve for sure. And then I guess you guys have been out for quite a while. I think you said over 15 years. Um, no, about what, 11 years. We launched it 11 years ago. 11 years ago. And I guess what makes you guys different from all the competitors in the market? Because I know there's a lot of companies that offer social media help, just like general agencies and whatnot. I think that what we find is that there are companies that offer elements of what we do. Many of them focus on one channel over another. There are certainly agencies that do what we do. The agency's costs are significantly higher than ours. The the challenge is that when we've seen our own services sold by agencies for 20, 30, 40 times more than what we would charge. I just think that there may be something that it's, it's complicated to manage the, the broad set of solutions, the optimization, the content creation, the growth, the engagement, 
And what we're trying to do is to deliver it in a way that's really super simple for folks. What we find is that whilst agencies can do this, as the world continues to uh, move forward, people want to have someone they can reach out to, but they really want to be able to do a lot more on their own. And so the technology, the Canary technology plays a key role in making it easy for those customers to just post out, review things. So I think that's really a big part of uh, our competitive advantage. The other side of it is just doing the scale and volume. We produce more content than the New York Times. We we can do that because of the biz, the, the model that we've built to, that produces content. We have a, a proprietary machine learning uh, system that we've built out over the last couple of years. And so I think the biggest difference for us is just to win at this game, you have to have scale and you have to do it cost effectively. Agencies really can't do it cost effectively. They, they can do it for a brand and they charge a lot for brands, but they just can't do it for individuals at a cost effective level. And so how does it work? Let's say if a founder joins in, do you talk about a certain amount of content that they should be producing or how do you, I guess, set them up for success or the... Steps. Yeah. So the first thing that happens uh, when uh, so a customer will go to our website, they'll fill out a form and um, they'll receive essentially an uh, analysis of their existing online presence. And um, they'll have a person that will take them through that. So we'll have one of our analysts that will take them through that presence and really highlight what it's doing well, what where the weaknesses are, where you can make some moves. And then we'll make a recommendation of kind of what we think is, is the right structure uh, for that individual. It's about, I'd say, a half an hour discussion. And from there, really, they decide whether they want to move forward with us in one form or, form or fashion. So we, we uh, have a core solution that we offer to folks that really covers off the majority of our customers. And then certainly we have, as, as the company evolves, we develop additional features. We also have what we call internally, we call it the worm. We have an online reputation management solution because sometimes people have a big problem. A link will appear on Google and they want to diminish that. And so over the last couple of months, we've been rolling out the worm and that kind of it's a more expensive solution because it requires a lot more hands-on work to be done, but helps a person to deal with an acute issue that they might have online. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, so it's more like, yeah, like a crisis solution. Yeah, it's more of that. Someone gets divorced and their ex posts a lot of nasty pictures or inappropriate pictures. How do you deal with that? Something like that. And we try to figure those things out. Awesome. And how did you approach to building and developing your business? Yeah. When I started the business, it, 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 I, I think we're a, a little bit different, maybe a lot of it different probably to, to what most entrepreneurs and founders are told. And so I think perhaps my perspective might be interesting. When we started the business, there was a lot of excitement about what we did. No one was really doing anything in the space. And so we raised money really quite easily. I'd say for the MVP of our solution, we raised everything in a month. 
maybe six weeks oh. at most. And it wasn't a lot of money, but for an MVP, you don't need a lot of money. And so that kind of got us going and got us to the mentality of, oh, all these people saying raising money is so hard. What are they talking about? It's so easy. After the first year, after we'd launched the platform and we were going, we were running out of money. We were burning. And I had that moment of, oh, okay, so let's go raise some more money. So we went out to raise money. And man, that second time was tough because the the questions are much more aggressive after you've released your MVP. They're looking, they want more data. They want, they want to see exactly the traction levels. They want to understand really how you're going to scale up. So the, the pressure on the analysis and the data room and everything was like 50-fold what it was the first time. And we were, we struggled. I think we finally got our funding. Uh, we had three investors that promised to invest and literally backed out for one reason or another in the 11th hour. And I, I kid you not, we were in a situation where I wasn't sure if I could meet payroll. I was, it was a, it was one of those difficult moments where I, I sat there with my number two and we just went through every cost in the business and how we could survive. Blah, blah, blah. And we had one last meeting and the last meeting we had, the guy was like, yeah, I'll put in a little bit. And he put a little bit in and then another couple of investors came in. And and that experience taught me two things. One, one was it, it's not fun to be at the beck and call of investors. They tend to be very intelligent. A lot of investors will, they won't really go with a thesis that goes against a trend as often. Uh, they'll, they'll, they like to follow a trend, right? So if everyone's investing in one thing, they like to follow that easily. And our philosophy of, of focusing on the individual and the executive was really out of step at, at that time with where the market was, where everyone was like putting all their money into marketing and media and brand building. And so it just seemed that people were like, right, we don't really understand. But it was tough. The other thing that it really taught me was I never wanted to be at a point again where the business was at risk, that we were going to burn so much that we were going to have to shut the, the thing down just because we didn't have enough you know, cash flow and capital. And after that second round, I think we raised a little bit more after that. But since then, we haven't raised. And we really built the business to always be break-even and profitable. And we, the way we roll out new services, new elements, new attributes to the system is a little bit different than these companies that you see the guys are superstars, the ladies are superstars, and then they go under and you're like, what happened? It's because they're just burning so much cash and they're, they're building unsustainable solutions. We really built a commercial model and only invested behind the commercial model when we saw it really showing performance. So a lot of the stuff that you hear today when the economy has been in a slow state, we've operated our business that way from day one. And... And, I, and that's why we're here. That's why we're scale. That's why we're the global leader in our category. And so I, I think you, you don't want to be beholden to a bunch of investors. It's really dangerous for folks. And also, and this is a podcast for founders. Founders have to be really smart 
on not overvaluing their company out of the gate. One of the biggest problems I've found with founders is that they come out of these, com, you know, Y Combinator, et cetera, with these ridiculously high valuations, and they really feel quite special because of that. But none of those valuations are justified. And within a year, 18 months, they're really in difficult situations because their commercial model was perhaps not fully developed. They can't meet the revenue targets. And guess what happens? Those founders don't survive. Like they get knocked out of their own businesses. Their equity gets slashed. I've seen it in so many times and it's always the same thing. It's young people that get really excited and then they get pounded by this kind of reality, which the venture guys know up front. They know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly that they're like, the technology is good. They're going to struggle with a commercial model, and I'm going to be able to take more equity on the cheap in 18 months. They know exactly what they're doing. And it's a nasty game. It's not the nicest part of the, the VC world, but it's a reality. And so I, I would say that there's probably like a mid-speed for most companies. If, if you're a unicorn company or a trillion-dollar company like an open AI, it's a different story, right? You got to take as much money as you can get. You need to get ridiculously high quality talent, but for 99% of the companies that are out there that are startups, most of them will be great $30 million companies if they survive. And, and so the VC world is against those companies, right? Like the VC world really has no need for a $30 million company that does it. They're not going to make enough money from it. They really only want the billion dollar plays, right? That's the world that they want. So I think that's that goes against the, the thesis of what entrepreneurs are about. For an entrepreneur, if you can build a company that's generating 30 million plus, that's a great business. Maybe kicking off an EBIT of five, six, seven million, who knows? That would be incredible. And that company would be worth a lot of money. And I'm a big believer that our economy, the global economy, American economy, every economy needs more of those types of businesses because those are the lifeblood of every city and every town in the world. And we often neglect those folks. If I ever was a political person, I would find a way to help those businesses even more because those are the ones that give jobs. You said that you spent some time in Valencia. A town like Valencia in Spain, if Valencia had 10 companies that did that, that would change that town. It would change that town. So I'm a big believer in that kind of supporting those mid-tier, mid-successful entrepreneurs. Yeah, I can totally agree to that. Because at the end of the day, profitability is the name of the game, right? Because a lot of these companies, I feel like it's they're after revenue, they're after raising capital. But then when the market conditions are bad, you realize that they weren't good companies to begin with because now the investors, they're not giving them money and they can't hit their revenue targets. Yeah, it's really, it's sometimes hard for me to swallow because I, I look at companies that raise a ton of money and that skill to raise that much money is amazing. And that is a gift. If you can impress a group of people, showing them the total addressable market is huge and your technology is cutting edge and they want to give you a lot of money 
that's a great skill. However, that's not the same skill and it's not the same skill set to run a successful business. And I would definitely push people to make sure that they have the commercial model in mind. Make sure that you're making money and you can show that quickly. There's too many examples of folks that are just like, you look at their model and you go, that's not really a scalable commercial model. Like it's just the cost of just uh, acquiring customers is just going to be so high. How are they going to make that work? And it happens so often, but anyways, I digress. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And I love how you said that those $30 million companies, they can change cities like Valencia. And I completely agree because this is the thing I recently saw, like Dollar General stores where they're going into very small cities and they're knocking out the local competition of supermarket. Because the issue is if, if a company is like locally based, it has employees there, all the it's going there, people will spend that money in that city. So it's going to help like the local economy grow. So I think really that does make a lot of sense that the more of those companies are out there, the more jobs people can have, the more money they can make, and the more they can help raise like the local economy. I agree. I agree. Cool. And then as a final question, what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs that are looking to enter the B2B SaaS or even like the B2B service market? Yeah, it's funny. There was a, a journalist from LinkedIn the other day. I think I actually posted on this. So if someone goes and looks me up on LinkedIn, I, I put like the seven things that I think folks should be thinking about right now. Some of them I've already talked about today. One of them is not to over forecast. Sometimes companies, when they put their plans together, they're like, oh, next year we're going to be 10 million. And you're like, what did you do in your first month? Oh, in the first month we made 7,000, but we're going to make 10 million in the first year. Okay, guys, settle down. Basically be thoughtful on how you set your targets and don't set yourself up to fail. Because if you're really gunning it for those targets and you're spending and you're burning at like a really expensive rate, your company's done. You're going to die, right? But your acquisition of customers has to be smart and thoughtful, right? The first thing, before even that, though, I would say to any aspiring entrepreneur, and this is my philosophy on business, if you don't have a customer, you don't have a business. If you don't have a customer, you don't have a business. If someone's not paying you money to do what you do, you are not in business. You are maybe a public advocacy group. You are maybe an element to something that might turn into a business, but you are not a business. And I would really push investors. Sometimes I'll have people that are like, oh yeah, I'm going to create a media company and we're going to share content about paddle tennis and it's going to be amazing. Okay. Are, are, are you guys running ads? Do you have money coming in? Oh no, but we're going to build it up. Somebody's got to be paying you money or you just don't have a real business. The other things, uh, is I said, forecasting is really important. So many other things. Cash flow is king. So manage your cash flow super tightly. If you find that you're spending a ton of money on flying your whole team out to events and you're not landing any customers, you're doing things wrong, right? You got to make sure that you manage your money in a wise way, even if you raise a ton, right? Even if you raise a ton of money, 
do not be wasteful with it. Don't fly first class. Don't spend a million bucks on sponsoring an event. And it, it, it just to be very clever. Of course, those things will happen. And yes, you will. I sponsor events now, but it's a different phase of the company. So it's like when you're getting going, sometimes you'll feel like oh, we got to be at this event and we got to do this. And oh, they want 70 grand to be a sponsor. Ooh, be smart about that. Would you personally spend 70 grand? Would your mom spend 70 grand? Would your dad spend 70 grand on that? Probably not, right? So be smart about that type of stuff. Make sure that anything that you're doing on the marketing side has some type of element tethered back to an attribution or a sale. It's not that branding doesn't matter. Branding really matters, but... When you're getting a company going, you really need to show that kind of correlation to marketing, content marketing strategy and sales. And then the last thing I'm going to end on, don't navel gaze on your technology. I find that I have this happen a lot of times when I talk to entrepreneurs now. I've invested in a whole bunch of companies. I've started several other companies now, and I would say... Sometimes we'll be like, oh, I'm one feature away. I got to add this new thing. If I just put like video here, or if I just change this data menu this way, everything will just be amazing. No effing way. If your minimal viable product is not functioning in the marketplace, adding more frosting to that MVP is not going to do anything. Get the core solution correct. Get the core solution correct before you start adding frosting, basically. So I'll end on, I'll end on that. I'm being too serious. If, if, if I was sitting with you in a room, Alex, these are the things I would tell you. So Awesome. So yeah, just summarize some of the stuff we talked about today. Don't focus on those shiny objects like those billion dollar companies. At the end of the day, it's totally okay to build like a 10 million, 20 million profitable business. That's still amazing, especially when you have more yeah. equity. Cash flow is king, right? So we should be smart about how we're spending our money. And I guess the other thing is like when we're doing marketing, we have to make sure it's focused on uh, generating us revenue, especially in the beginning. And the final thing, which you said, which I also love is don't keep adding random features. Make sure that the core product is solid. Yeah, that sometimes with tech-driven founders, you'll say, hey, listen, Bob or Sarah, you're, you, you don't have any customers. And they'll say, yeah, I know, but we're just trying to add on this new table and it's going to change everything. And you're like, how much is that going to cost? Oh, it's probably going to be another 200000 and Stop. If they're not buying the core, let's try to figure out why they're not buying the core first. And, and then we build, build from there, so... Golden advice right there. Cool, man. I guess thanks for joining the podcast. You can let the audience know how they can connect with you. And we're happy to share those links below, especially when you have that uh, new report out as well. Yeah. So the report will be coming out actually probably in the next month. And so I'm happy. I don't know when this will go live, but early November 2023. And you know, you can reach us at qnary.com. Uh, which is our website. Uh, you can also reach me on LinkedIn. 
Um, I'm very active on social channels. So uh, certainly uh, feel free to ping me and, and I will connect with you. I'm always happy to talk to entrepreneurs as they're trying to move their businesses forward. I'm a big believer in it. Kudos to everyone that wants to be an entrepreneur. It's exciting. It's tough but it's needed and we need to continue to disintermediate to drive this world forward in a positive way. Awesome. Thanks for jumping in, Ben. What wonderful to have you. All right. Cheers, Alex. Yeah.